Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swaminathan. And I'm Jenny Beckesme. All right, Jenny, what are we going to drop into today? Well, so I feel like in emergency medicine, we do a really great job at the acute headache. We know to worry about the subarachnoid hemorrhages and the meningitis, and we really do a pretty good job at the patient who comes in with an exacerbation of their chronic headache syndrome. So, oh, this is my migraine-type headache. It just won't go away, and we can give them the meds and make them feel better. But there's this kind of gray area in the middle of these headaches, the subacute headache that I think we just don't think about too much. And I had a case of one of those that I really wanted to talk about. That was a great topic. I agree with you. I think the acute headache, it's kind of fun to think about. We teach about it all the time, about missing these critical diagnoses. But those patients that kind of fall in between, uh, you're right. I don't teach about that very often, and I'm not even sure exactly which diagnoses I have to be worried about. So why don't you give us the case, and we'll go from there. Great. So this was a 32-year-old female who came in for what she thinks was about two weeks of a headache. She says she has it all day, every day. It gets a little bit better when she takes ibuprofen, but it never really goes away. And then it comes back again right away. It's this dull kind of global everywhere in her headache, excuse me, everywhere in her head kind of headache. It was probably gradual and onset. At worst, it's maybe a five or six out of 10. She does note that it seems to be worse when she has to, you know, bend forward to tie her shoes, but otherwise doesn't really notice anything that makes it worse or makes it much better. She also said that she... She sees what these things that she describes as ants in her vision. So she says it's just like ants are crawling across her visual field. This happens several times a day, and it just really looks like something kind of crawling across her visual field. And it happens both eyes for a few seconds at a time, and then it goes away. Um, on kind of taking more history, the only thing that came up was that she'd had a dental infection uh, in one of her maxillary canines about a week before she started getting the headaches, but she finished a whole course of antibiotics and didn't seem to think the tooth itself wasn't really causing her any pain anymore. So now, obviously, I know that we're going to have a serious diagnosis here, but one of the first things that comes to my head is you've got a patient with two weeks of headaches. It's not that severe. I'm not worried about subarachnoid hemorrhage. Nothing here smells like meningitis. The dental infection makes me a little worried. I don't think that there's an ascending infection because the patient looks pretty good. And so my initial thought is wanting to kind of blow this off. Two weeks of headache. It's not that bad. Eh, You can go see your doctor, go see a neurologist. It'll be fine. But when you consider some of the other symptoms, the other things she describes here, I think you start to get a little bit more worried. You always have to consider cerebral venous thrombosis. That's always got to be in there, especially if they have any kind of a neuro component. And in this case, she's got this vision component that makes me a little more worried about that. The positional nature, along with these visual findings, also makes me think about idiopathic intracranial hypertension. A pituitary mass is on my list here as well. Yeah. So the thing that really got me the most concerned about this patient's story was that she was having these visual changes. I mean, her vital signs were fine. She didn't look toxic, certainly, but she also didn't look comfortable. She kind of was rubbing at the back of her neck. She looked unhappy. But, you know, we see visual disturbances with some primary headaches even. You know, there's this aura that's associated with migraine headaches. But in general, I think when there's a neurosymptom, any kind of focal neurosymptom or a vision changes, particularly in a patient who's never had something like that before, we really need to think about that and give them some some workup. Yeah, so I think we definitely agree. Any kind of a hard neuro complaint and vision symptoms are definitely in there. You're going to start looking at doing a real workup, looking for a distinct pathology. So where are you starting with the physical here? Where are you starting with testing? Well, so of course you want to do a good eye exam. This person has visual symptoms. Make sure you do a good eye exam. But 
part of the physical exam that we're generally pretty terrible at in the emergency department is the fundoscopic exam. And I like to think that that's not our fault. We don't dilate the pupils and the emergency departments are really bright. So how could we possibly do this well? But while I attempted that maneuver, I wasn't terribly successful, of course. So I decided to move on to another tool that we have at our disposal, the ultrasound. Oh, that's pretty cool. So you were doing the ultrasound looking for papilledema. And let's talk a little bit about how we do ocular ultrasounds, because I think this is a pretty low-hanging fruit, something that you can get good at pretty quickly, and you can identify a lot of different pathologies. So first, you want to prep the patient. You want to put a tegaderm over the closed eye and lots of gel. Although that gel is non-toxic, it can irritate eyes, so you don't want to put that directly on the eye. A high-frequency linear probe placed with minimal pressure on the eye in case you're worried at all that this patient could have increased uh, intraocular pressure. Find the posterior aspect of the globe and identify the optic nerve. You're going to measure the width of the optic nerve from inner wall to inner wall at a location three millimeters posterior to the globe. And what you're looking for is a number greater than five millimeters. Less than five is normal. Anything greater than five, you start to be worried about increased intracranial pressure. So the numbers to remember here are like a three by five index card, three millimeters posterior to the globe, and you're looking for a five millimeter diameter of that optic nerve. An ultrasound is pretty good. It has a sensitivity of almost 96%, and the specificity, not too bad either, 92% when you're specifically looking for increased intracranial pressure. Right. So that's what we did. And sure enough, my patient had optic nerves that were 7.7 millimeters and 6.8 millimeters. So they were big on both of her eyes, too high. So at this point, I was concerned for the patient having idiopathic intracranial hypertension, like you said, but I couldn't rule out a venous sinus thrombosis. So I ended up admitting her to get the rest of her workup. Yeah, let's pause there for a bit and talk about these two diagnoses before you tell us the end of the case. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which used to be known as pseudotumor cerebri, was also called benign intracranial hypertension. And we've moved away from that, first of all, because it's not a pseudotumor. It's not a mass that I can't find. And it's not benign. These patients can have vision loss. It's a disorder that's defined by clinical criteria that includes symptoms and signs of increased intracranial pressure. So things like headache, papilledema, and vision loss elevated intracranial pressure with normal CSF composition. So part of this diagnosis means you have to do a lumbar puncture, you have to do a CSF analysis, and there has to be no other causes of increased intracranial hypertension evident on neuroimaging or other evaluations. And those three things, you know, we should repeat them one more time because all of those pieces are important. It's a disorder that you're looking for increased intracranial pressure, which may be symptomatic, that headache, papilledema, vision loss, elevated intracranial pressure with a normal CSF, and no other diagnosis. Right. Now, patients with this disorder can suffer from intractable headaches that can be quite debilitating, you know, keeping them home from work, keeping them from taking care of and playing with their kids like they want to. So it's really not benign. And then it's definitely not benign when you think about their risk for permanent vision loss. So it's one of those subacute ED diagnoses that we really should be familiar with. The annual incidence is one to two per 100,000 in our population, but it's much higher in obese women. And so with the rise of obesity in the United States, that incidence has been rising. It's primarily a disorder that affects women of childbearing age who are overweight, but it can also be seen in young men, young infants, and the elderly. So we can't just eliminate the diagnosis simply based on epidemiologic criteria. 
Risk factors other than obesity in general include the use of growth hormone, tetracyclines, hypervitaminosis A, that's the classic explorers who ate the bear liver story that you hear about. I think it's specifically polar bear liver, in fact, and not something that is uh, on the plate in my household very often. And there are also some limited anecdotal evidence of association with things like thyroid replacement, corticosteroid withdrawal, lithium, oral contraceptives, and macrobit. There's some medical conditions as well that may be risk factors or predisposed patients, so Addison's disease, hypoparathyroidism, anemia, sleep apnea, systemic lupus, Bichette's, PCOS, coagulation disorders, and uremia. Now, these patients usually present with a generalized headache. It's often gradual in onset and just kind of moderate in intensity. And the key thing here is that visual symptoms are quite common. Patients may have a transient visual loss or change several times a day that's secondary to ischemia of the visual pathways. These episodes can be followed by prolonged periods of visual loss, which can become permanent in up to 10% of patients. 10%. The papilledema found is usually bilateral, like in my patient, and symmetric, and the severity of the papilledema is associated with the risk of permanent visual loss. So once we're worried about idiopathic intracranial hypertension, how do we start pursuing the diagnosis? The International Classification of Headache Disorders does have a diagnostic criteria that has five pieces. Number one is to do the exam. Look for papilledema, look for an enlarged blind spot, and look for any visual field defects. The second step is to do an LP, and you're looking for increased CSF pressure measured by lumbar puncture in the recumbent positions. You want to have them lying on their side when you do this. You want to have a normal CSF chemistry, so a normal protein, normal cellularity, making sure that there isn't some other diagnosis here. You want to make sure there's no metabolic, toxic, or hormonal cause of intracranial hypertension. And then finally, you have to make sure that they have no other intracranial disease. And one of the ones they specifically point out is the venous sinus thrombosis. You want to make sure you rule all of these things out by appropriate investigations. Yeah, you do have to make sure that you rule out the venous sinus thrombosis. And so that's that last one there that we got stuck on with my patient. We felt that she had some risk factors for venous sinus thrombosis as well as for the intracranial hypertension. So because of this dental infection she had, we were kind of stuck in the middle. So let's talk about that. Venous sinus thrombosis is a thrombosis of the intracranial veins and sinuses and is a rare cause of stroke but tends to affect younger patients without traditional CVA risk factors. And again, like we said, you really can't make this diagnosis of IIH without ruling out the cerebral venous thrombosis because they really look very similar. And I remember my neurologist saying this kind of multiple times on patients where they were worried about intracranial hypertension. We were worried about it, but they were like, eh, you're really not going to get there until we get some imaging to make sure they don't have a cerebral venous thrombosis. The patients with this disease, the cerebral venous thrombosis, can have a really wide range of symptoms. Headache is obviously going to be a very common one. Sometimes these patients will have seizures, decreased level of consciousness, focal neurodeficits, papilledema, and with cavernous sinus thrombosis, you can have ocular findings that dominate the presentation because it's impinging on cranial nerves. Now, again, this diagnosis is more prevalent in women, so that's, that's kind of reinforcing this crossover. Usually, these patients are found to have some underlying thrombophilia, so risk factors include cancer, pregnancy, local infections, so otitis media, sinusitis, facial cellulitis, hypercoagulable states, trauma. There's some drugs that have been associated with this, including OCPs, androgens, and even ecstasy. And then, of course, if you have a compression of the venous sinus with a tumor or an abscess, that's going to put you at risk for this disorder. If you suspect cerebral venous thrombosis, the diagnostic study of choice is an MRI, MRV, and then if you find one, the treatment's going to be anticoagulation. So Jenny, what happened with your patient? 
Well, because of that recent dental infection and because we really weren't exactly sure what was going on between these two diagnoses, we felt like we couldn't take the venous sinus thrombosis off the differential without appropriate imaging. And we really didn't want to pursue an LP before getting the imaging. So we admitted the patient to neurology and she received an MRI MRV, which was negative for any cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, which is good. She then underwent an LP and the opening pressure was too high to be measured. Like the fluid literally went over the top of the manometer. And then after the LP, she felt much better. And that's pretty common. These patients often feel better after an LP, which Jenny, I've never had an LP done, but I really think it's unlikely that I'm going to feel better after an LP. So that's virtually diagnostic. I took some fluid off. The patient felt better. So some of these patients will actually be managed with therapeutic LPs from time to time. Some of the other things that are recommended are weight loss, acetazolamide, and occasionally surgical procedures where they can continually drain that CSF so that the patient doesn't continue to have symptoms. All right. So before we wrap up, Jenny, how about some take-home points? Of course. First, keep idiopathic intracranial hypertension and cerebral venous sinus thrombosis on the differential for patients coming in with a subacute headache, particularly if they have visual or neuro symptoms. Second, consider an ocular ultrasound. I am not the person who's dragging an ultrasound machine around with me everywhere I go. That's just not me. But this one is a good one. It's quick, shockingly easy to do, and can help point you toward a diagnosis you may have otherwise overlooked. I have made it a practice now to take a quick look as part of the physical exam in my patients coming in with a concerning sounding headache or a headache with neurologic symptoms. Third, consider idiopathic intracranial hypertension, particularly in an overweight female of childbearing age with a subacute headache. But remember, patients outside that demographic can have this diagnosis as well. And then last, consider cerebral venous sinus thrombosis in a patient with a thrombophilic process like cancer or pregnancy or that's using OCPs or androgens or in a patient with a recent facial infection like sinusitis or cellulitis. Well, that's all for the Coriam podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coriam.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, Falls and Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. And if you got a couple of minutes, pop on over to iTunes and give us an evaluation of the podcast. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, and what we could do better. Thanks, and see you all next week. <laughs>